Well, it's another day and it's another podcast. We're here for the ninth episode, getting towards the end of the semester. Vivek, how are we doing today? How are the last couple of weeks going? Fill me in. Yeah, bro. It's been pretty busy, had some midterms, but uh, we're getting near the end here. So I'm excited for that. And today we're really excited to bring on our next guest. Uh, we're thrilled to bring on Keith Ritchie. Keith is a proud Trojan, where he received his MA in Global Media and Communication back in 2003. And Keith is the creator of the Play Well newsletter, which explores the connection between play and mental health. Keith is also a seasoned marketing expert with over 20 years of experience helping companies of all sizes in their marketing initiatives. Early in his career, Keith was an associate consultant at Vivaldi Partners and a partner director at Ogilvy and Master. In 2012, Keith joined LinkedIn as a group manager for global, global marketing and eventually served as the senior director of global marketing from 2017 to 2021. Since leaving LinkedIn in 2021, Keith has been a consultant, advisor, um, and an advisor for founders and leadership teams to focus on mental wellness through play. And in January of this year, Keith started working as operating advisor at Bessemer Venture Partners helping Bessemer portfolio companies drive growth through marketing. Keith is obviously has a lot he's going to want to talk about from mental health to marketing to startups, and we're so excited to bring him on. So Vivek, we ready to, we ready? Oh yeah, let's do it. Keith, uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Great to be here with you, Eric and Vivek. So you know, we're going to talk a lot today about your 20 plus years in marketing, your time as a Trojan. But frankly, the reason why I was first really interested in you having you on is because you have a newsletter called uh, Play Well, in which you talk about the connection between mental health and play. And I thought this was such an interesting and innovative way to think about mental health. And so I really want to start our conversation with that. So the first question I want to ask is, why do you think adults don't treat themselves with the amount of self-care as they would with children? Thanks, Eric. And I've, I've become very passionate about both mental health and play, play as a means for improving mental health and improving happiness. And we can talk more about that as well. Um, but broadly speaking, on the topic of mental health, um, the the main reason I think that adults aren't as focused on their own self-care as they would be for children, either their children or other children, is actually for a really good reason. And I think of it as sort of natural altruism or natural caring instinct. So as a society, and this goes back to prehistory, adults caring for kids is always a higher priority than adults caring for themselves. And I think there's sort of a uh, evolutionary aspect to that. So <clears throat> in order to propagate the species, you need to make sure that the younger members of the species live on so that they can have younger members of the species themselves and the lineage can continue. So I think there's a really deep-seated biological reason why 
caring for kids is such a priority. It also starts from birth where you need to care for your kid. There's, they can't care for themselves yet. So, and it takes many years until they're able to. So I think there's a lot of ingrained behavior around prioritizing the care of children above the care for adults. And I think that's all good. I do think there's uh, an aspect to it though, that could, could be harmful for adults if they're not taking care of themselves. And we've all been on an airplane where they talk about putting your mask on first before you help a child that's seated next to you. And I do think adults generally are not really taking stock of their own needs and their own mental health. <clears throat> They're not really putting their own mask on first and caring for themselves before they care for others, particularly children. And again, it mostly comes from this altruism, but I do think that you're much more effective caring for others if you're also caring for yourself. And I would even go so far as to say that you're more effective caring for others if you first care for yourself. So while I think the reasons are mostly good that children get the priority when it, term, when, when it comes to care, especially for mental health, I do think that as adults, we can prioritize our own self-care uh, first and foremost, because we'll be better able to care for others, including children, when we do that. So speaking a little bit more about like kids and mental health, how do you want your kids slash kids to think about their mental health and how, how do they sort of navigate that when they're young? Yeah, so I have two kids. They're both boys ages six and nine. And Vivek, I, I guess I don't really know yet how I want them to think about their mental health. And it's a good prompt because... I think certainly my older son, who's nine, is getting to an age where it's it's important for me to think about his mental health and what I would like for him uh, to think about it himself. So I haven't really had to cross this bridge yet with my kids, and I know that day is coming uh, sooner or later, and it's a good prompt to get ahead of it. If I, if I would really to step back and think about it right now, my response would be, I really want my kids to think about their own mental health, that it's okay to ask for help. So that's been one of my biggest learnings in my own mental health journey is that very few people are equipped to, in fact, I would probably venture to say nobody is really equipped to handle all the mental health challenges that life throws at them by themselves. And that not only is it therefore necessary to ask for help when you need it, but it's also very beneficial to ask for help when you need it. And so since I'm not quite sure yet what sort of mental health journeys my kids will go on, I think the most fundamental thing that I would wish for them is for them to know that it's okay to ask for help. And so you describe what play means to you and kind of in a more def definitive form in your newsletter, but to our audience, what, what do you mean by play, especially for adults? Uh, how, how are adults integrating play into their mental health and how, how are they going about that? Yes. So play for me is 
the definition I use is that play is anything that's fun for you that actively engages your brain. So I think of it as any activity you choose to do for fun. So you're actively making a choice, you're doing it for fun, and it actively engages your brain. And there are things that we might do for fun that don't really actively engage your brain. And I think that's a key distinction here. For, for it to be play, your brain has to be working. Your brain has to be flexing. And that doesn't mean it has to be the most intellectually stimulating play, like playing chess, although playing chess would certainly qualify as play. It just means that you can't be zoned out and totally passive and leaned back. And so there are definitely things that are fun that that involve being totally zoned out and like leaning back and just being passive. And so I'm not saying don't have that kind of fun, but I am suggesting that that's not really play because your brain's not actively engaged. But uh, having you know, establish this definition of play as something you choose to do for fun that actively engages your brain. The one great thing about play is that you get to decide what's fun for you. And everyone has their own play personality. What's fun and playful for me may not be fun and playful for you, Eric, or fun and playful for you, Vivek, and vice versa. So you really, as an adult, get to decide what's fun for you, get to decide what actively engages your brain while you're doing it. And you can choose to do those things for play and things that aren't fun. You don't have to do them, uh, you know, for play, you might still have to do them like for your work or for your family, but you don't have to seek it out in your playtime. So like you kind of mentioned like how, when you're playing, you kind of need to like put in some work and like put in some effort. Right. Why do you, why do you say that? What's the reason behind that? Yes. So I think the, for me, because let me back up for one step and then I'll answer your question. Vivek. So mm -hmm. the reason I got so interested in play is because first and foremost, I was really interested in mental health. And I think mental health is a global crisis. I think the challenges we face as a, as humanity with mental health are getting more severe as the world gets more complex and more fast paced, as economic divides increase, as instability, whether that's due to climate change or geopolitical forces increases. So I think we're going to be reckoning with mental health challenges for a long time to come, and I think they're going to get more severe. So I've had my own journey with mental health starting about 15 or so years ago, and that got me thinking about mental health. And then over the past few years, I've been thinking more about my own career and how I can have um, a positive impact and work on something that I'm really passionate about. And that has led me to my deep interest in mental health, my own experience, plus thinking about how I can apply my skills in my career. And so, uh, you know, I'm really very uh, almost like, you know, solely focused on mental health in, in the questions I'm pursuing related to my career. And at one point within the past year or so, I had this epiphany that 
play was the secret superpower that can bring happiness. And it therefore is totally related to mental health. And so when I think about play, I think about uh, play through the lens of mental health. And I think about the, the effect that play has on the brain. And Vivek, to answer your question specifically, that's why I think of play as something that necessitates this active posture, uh, whether that's an active mental posture or an active physical posture. And in both cases, whether it's something you're doing physically or something you're doing mentally, this play by being active, it's going to stimulate your neurons in your brain in a way that's ultimately going to be positive for your mental agility, for your mental resilience, and all of that has a positive impact on mental health. And the kind of sort of fake play I was describing before where you're doing something that feels fun, but you're zoned out, you're passive, you're leaned back, you might just be sitting on your couch watching a screen. Uh, it's not to say it's not fun, but to me, it doesn't meet the bar for play because it's not actively engaging your brain the way physical play or mental play does. And because it's actively engaging your brain, there's not a direct mental health benefit to it. So again, I'm not saying never have that kind of passive fun where you're zoning out, chilling out, leaning back. That's good. And I think taking those kind of breaks in, in your week or in your day, that's important too. But I, I don't think that it doesn't qualify for me as play. And so I don't think it's a, it's a fair substitute for play. And I think um, in general, if we played more, we'd be happier as a society. So I think play is important enough that um, I encourage people to do more of it and um, to be mindful about the, the kind of play that they really like to do and making sure that it does actively engage the brain so that they get the most benefit. And switching a little bit, but still on the topic of mental health, there's been a discussion for years about the ill effects that technology can have on mental health, whether that's social media for teens, you know, even now AI, what are the implications of that on people's mental health? But I find it interesting because you have an interesting perspective coming from the marketing and technology sector. And so what do you think are some of the most effective ways that technology can actually help people and organizations deal with their mental health? Thanks, Eric. Yes, I agree that technology is both, uh, you know, part of the problem and part of the solution when it comes to mental health. And that's not, you know, that's not unique to digital technology, people were probably saying the same things when the printing press was invented, right? So they may not have had the same vocabulary to talk about it, but there's there's pros and cons to every new technology. It can be used for nefarious purposes. It can be used for good. And I think there are definitely benefits that technology can bring to improve mental health. And I think about this primarily in three ways. So the first is, technology can lower the barriers to access for mental health. And so that comes really in two flavors. One is it can make it more affordable. So mental health care can be provided uh, remotely without needing uh, 
uh, office that you're paying rent for as the mental health provider. You can have mental health providers that live in places that have lower cost of living. And so the, the fees that they're charging could be lower um, and make it more accessible that way. It's also some people are reluctant to go and see a mental health provider in person or it doesn't fit their schedule. And so having access to mental health care virtually can lower the barrier uh, that way as well, just making it easier to access care. So lowering the barrier is the first way that technology can improve mental health. The second way is by making care more effective. So essentially using the data that you can gather in a distributed way from a large sample um, because people are accessing care through technology and it's easier to gather that data can make the care uh, plans more, more effective by virtue of being more tailored and more customizable uh, by getting more powerful learnings about what's working and what's not across a broad population. And then also I think technology can make certain types of care more engaging. And uh, in fact, uh, that leads to my third area that I think is more a nascent area for exploration, but in, uh, I have a hypothesis that the third way that technology can improve mental health care is by making mental health care more playful. And so there's obviously a lot of criticism in society about uh, technology in the form of video games being a net negative for people, especially for young kids. So there's even talk about you know video game addiction. Um, and unfortunately, some kids do get that diagnosis. But I think if we take what's one of the things that's great about video games, which is how engaging they are and how immersive they can be, and apply that to mental health care models, having care that's more playful, that has elements of gameplay embedded into it, can make it ultimately more engaging and ultimately more effective. Because one of the great things about play is that humans are born knowing how to play. It's actually tied in with how we survive. And play, even from a very, very young age, makes us feel good. So we want to do more of it. And so if you apply that logic over to the realm of mental health care, if the care is feeling a little bit less like something you have to really work at and is like difficult and hard, but feels more like something playful that you want to do, then you might do more, seek more care, do more of it when you get it and ultimately get better faster. So that's a hypothesis I have. And something I definitely want to explore more. So there's been this like huge, you know, talk around AI and like how it's going to change the world and how it's going to replace jobs and all that. Um, and then one of the jobs that's supposedly going to be replaced is like therapists. But for me personally, like I want to be dealing with the human when I'm talking to a therapist. Um, but like, yeah, what's your take on that? Like, how do you think that's going to affect therapy and, you know, mental health? So I think a lot of the, future for AI, you know, remains to be written and we'll see how it all pans out. So I'm, I'm not um, going to pretend that I've got the crystal ball and, and I know exactly what's going to happen and I can be totally off base. Um, we'll see. But uh, 
when sort of AI was in its nascency and it was more about, you know, machine learning and automation a few years ago, there was a wave of mental health apps that arose that essentially were trying to take cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of mental health care, a form of talk therapy where you use your own thoughts and sort of repattern uh, your own thoughts so that instead of ending up in a sort of negative thought spiral, you use positive self-talk as one example to reverse the narrative that you're telling yourself. Uh, for example, if you're an anxious person and you're anticipating the worst outcome, which is something I'm very good at, you use cognitive behavioral therapy to flip that script and instead of imagining the worst outcome, you imagine the best outcome and your thought pattern can actually help you manifest that best outcome uh, because you're not fixating on what can go wrong, but you're thinking about instead what can go right and helping make that true. So um, there, were, there was a wave of innovation and, and apps that basically took the practice of cognitive behavioral therapy and turned it into sort of like an automated interactive app that an individual could use to get help with their mental health um, and uh, do it in a lower cost way um, and in a very scaled way and still allow for some customization because this automation could be tailored to a specific individual's needs. And unfortunately, that model of care didn't really pan out. And I think the biggest reason was because something you were alluding to, Vivek, which is people still like to have conversations about their mental health and conversations in the form when they're seeking therapy. And so um, I think the, the impersonality of having the interaction be exclusively moderated through technology and through an app probably worked against those types of, uh, those types of products. I think the fact that mental health is very complex and there's no one size fits all answer probably also worked against these, uh, this initial wave of apps around, that were cognitive behavioral therapy based. And I think that ultimately um, they're uh, having a dialogue and having a real conversation about challenges you're facing as a mental health patient is ultimately very powerful. And it's really hard to replicate that. Now, what I do think we'll see with AI um, is more te technology that supplements and augments real life interaction between a patient and a therapist. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of advantages to having, um, you know, a daily practice around your mental health. And that's, that's actually like not affordable for almost anyone to be talking to their therapist daily. Most therapists also don't have that kind of time in their schedule. Um, the, the wait times to get onboarded as a new patient are still really long to see a therapist. So there's more demand than there is supply. And so it's not realistic for people to have sort of a daily touch base with their therapist, but um, there can, there can definitely be technology that plays a role in helping people with their daily mental health practice. For example, I use an app called Calm and I use it for meditation and I try and do their uh, daily Calm, which is a daily 10 minute meditation on most days. 
I also think there's applications for AI in helping therapists be even more effective with their jobs. And so I think there's advantages with technology and new technology that's emerging that will ultimately help patients and I think ultimately help care providers as well. So switching a little, I want to also highlight your career in marketing and branding. You've been doing it for over 20 years. And so could you give us just a couple of the biggest lessons you've learned um, from your time in the space? Sure. Yeah. So I've been very fortunate to have a 20 plus, 20 plus year career in marketing, and it's been a really great journey. And through that time, I've had roles at marketing consultancies, at advertising agencies. I worked uh, in-house for LinkedIn for nine years. And then for the past couple of years, I've been a marketing consultant and advisor. So almost full circle back to the strategy roles I had when I first started out. And I've gotten to work with a number of fantastic brands through that time. And I do like to think I've picked up some lessons along the way. So I'll share three of the biggest learnings I've had um, that can help entrepreneurs and investors when they're thinking about marketing for their companies. So the first learning is there's no silver bullet. And I think as marketers, we're always hunting for that silver bullet. Like what's the one thing we can do that's going to achieve our goals and just really take our brand to the next level. And, you know, every now and again, companies do find that silver bullet type uh, tactic or strategy um, or message that just either really resonates with the market or, you know, has like this amazing shareability where it, it just takes off uh, and has sort of a life of its own. But, um, you know, even when that happens, and I think of Nike just do it as their tagline as being a classic example of that. Apple had this great ad for the Super Bowl um, themed around 1984 that helped propel the Macintosh, you know, into the next level. Um, so there have been examples in the past where companies have really captured lightning in a bottle with their with with something they were doing in their marketing. But even in those examples, it wasn't just that one thing. Like there was a whole array of other marketing efforts that painted the full picture for that brand and ultimately led to their success. And so there's never a silver bullet. And it means that you do need to have a marketing strategy that works at every level of the funnel, awareness, consideration, conversion, and also post-sale with your customer. And you need to have uh, different marketing channels at play. You need to have different marketing tactics that you're deploying. And that all depends obviously on, you know, who your customer is and how you want to reach them and what message you want to deliver. So, you know, there, there's a lot that needs to be customized, but uh, don't try and look for the silver bullet. Instead, make sure you have a robust strategy in place uh, that will ultimately serve as the really strong foundation for your brand. So that's the first learning, no silver bullet. Second learning is you got to know your customer as a marketer really well. So marketing is the organization inside a company that should know the customer best. And that's because marketing should have the, the macro view of the customer landscape, existing customers, prospective future customers, where is this market going? 
into the future? Where will our customers be in a year or two? Are they going to be the same as they are now? Are they going to be a different population? And also looking at customers who have lapsed, customers who used to do business with us, but no longer do. Why did they churn? What will bring them back? What alternative did they seek that they found was better? And so marketing uh, has the right skill set in their organization and the right um, you know, infrastructure to understand the customer, do the research, interpret the findings, and then share that with the rest of the organization. And so as marketers, the better we know the customer, the more effective we can be at the, the stories we're telling that will motivate the customer to take the action we want. So the second learning is know the customer. And then the third learning is all about humility. So companies need to recognize that they are not the only owners of their brands. And the, the public actually are, I would say, equal co-owners of the brand. And that's because all the value in a brand is only there because of the perception people have of the brand. And that's the perception that the public has of the brand. So the way brand value is actually measured, the perception of the brand is how the value is actually measured. The way that's measured, it's, it's all, it, it exists entirely outside the company. So it's all about what the public thinks of your brand. And so that means they're equal co-owners of the brand because the value of the brand is based on what the public thinks. And so this insight for me suggests that brands really do need to be humble. Marketers need to be humble. You know, everybody in the company needs to be humble because they're not the exclusive owners of the brands. They really need to think about always doing the right thing for their customer um, and always doing the right thing for people who aren't even their customer today, but could be tomorrow. So humility is the third big learning for me. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I do a little bit of work with like uh, some marketing clubs on campus at USC, and I definitely will be taking those lessons to them because they sound perfect. So thank you. You bet. Uh, so yeah, other than that, like how has your experience been so far working for like portfolio companies at Bessemer? Yes, it's been great. So a little bit of context for your listeners here. Uh, I am a member of the operating advisor network for a venture capital firm called Bessemer Venture Partners. Bessemer is a leading venture firm based in Silicon Valley. They have offices in New York, London, Tel Aviv. So it's a, it's a global firm. And I, uh, as an operating advisor, I work part-time advising companies that are in the Bessemer portfolio. And in my case, I'm advising them about marketing. Uh, there are other types of operating advisors who advise on um, public relations, human resources, product, finance, et cetera. So they have a a suite of advisors or a team of advisors that, that have all different types of uh, functional expertise. My expertise is in marketing. And I started working with Bessemer in January. Um, it's been a real pleasure working with the founders and the leadership teams at the different portfolio companies that I've connected with. 
and helping them scale with their marketing. Um, the one thing I'm most struck by is just how passionate these teams are about their missions, about their customer. We were just talking about humility and 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 knowing your customer um, being essential. And you know, these are very talented teams who are doing their best to serve their customers. And it's really exciting to to sort of see that energy and to feel it and to feed off of it. So I've really enjoyed uh, being an advisor to this portfolio of uh, startups and, uh, you know, and working with Bessemer in that capacity. And then in fact, all of my work over the past year, uh, year and a half as a consultant and an advisor uh, has been with startups. And that wasn't by design initially. I wasn't like, okay, I, I've worked at big companies and now I only want to work with startups. It's just sort of how it happened. And yeah, it's been it's been great uh, working with startups and seeing the world through their lens and uh, feeling that energy and and having partners in in who work at the startups who are as passionate about their customers and about their mission as they are. So it's been really exciting, and I'm I'm glad that you all are helping spread the gospel of uh, entrepreneurship and venture capital and startups because yeah, it's really exciting. And so the, you've obviously worked at big companies like LinkedIn, and now you're on the startup side in terms of an advising role. What are some of the biggest marketing challenges that you've personally seen startups face and how are you helping startups deal with those? Yes. So it is very hard to be a startup period. And one of the hardest challenges, and I think probably the hardest challenge is the challenge of focus. And I experienced this when I worked at LinkedIn and I've definitely, so even larger companies can experience the challenge of focus. But what I mean by that is it's very hard to stay focused on the things that are absolutely critical to your business that will be the biggest needle movers for your business. Um, and that's for two reasons. One, especially for startups, there the list of things you could be doing that you haven't done yet as a startup, especially in marketing, but this goes for really any function. The list of things you could be doing that you haven't done yet is vast compared to the list of things you've tried and you know whether or not they work. So there's always great ideas that are like right in front of your face. And you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to think of great ideas of things we could be doing. So that list can grow and grow and grow and grow. But startups are really resource constrained, especially the early stage startups. They haven't raised that much money. They don't have that many employees. They don't have a big budget. They can't hire a lot of external partners. And so it's very tempting to try a bunch of new ideas and see what works, but that's not the best use of resources. So it requires being really strategic and having great insight either through the experiences you've already had as a company, through the experiences that your team has had in their professional journeys, or through getting advice from your board members, your investors, and other advisors on what is the really core set of activities that are going to move the needle for us that we should be, that are aligned to our strategy and that we should be very focused on. And so 
that's the that's the biggest challenge with focus. Uh, or that focus is one of the biggest challenges for startups. And then the other big challenge is marketing specific. Focus obviously applies to marketing, but is not marketing specific. The other big challenge for startups is a marketing challenge. And there's a golden, it's not a golden rule, but there's a, there's like a really fundamental rule of advertising, which is the impact of advertising of the impact of advertising is related to reach and frequency. So reach is how many people are you reaching with your message or with this ad? And frequency is how often are you reaching them? And so when you're advertising, reach and frequency work hand in hand together. So you want to be reaching as broad an audience as you can that's still within your target. You want to reach as many people in your target as you can, and you want to reach them as often as you're able to. And that will really help make sure that your brand is top of mind for them when they're trying to buy. And so startups just like we were talking about a second ago, they don't have a lot of resources. And so it's very challenging to buy access to a broad audience within their target. It's challenging to reach as many people as they can. And it's also challenging, challenging to reach them as often as possible because usually it costs money to reach people and it costs money to reach them with frequency. So for startups, what I, what I really uh, focus on with them is how are we going to hone your strategy? so that it works harder uh, and you can, you can overcome this sort of reach and frequency obstacle. And so I work a lot with startups on their marketing strategy to help them overcome this reach and frequency obstacle. And the, one of the ways, one of the tools I use to help startups with their marketing strategy is what I call the four S's. And that's uh, an updated version of the classic four P's of marketing, which I think are a little bit out of date. So the four P's, product, price, place, and promotion. I think customers have evolved and what they are looking for from brands and what they need has evolved. And customers care a lot more about what companies stand for and the, the stance, literal stance that companies take uh, in their market then they then customers care a lot more about that now than they used to. And they want to do business with companies that align with their values. So for me, the, I use the four S's, which starts the first S is stance. So the four S's start with stance. What do you stand for as a company? What are your values? And customers really want to know what those are um, and do business with, with companies that align to their values. So the first S of the four is stance. Then the second is solution. What problem do you solve? Is it a real problem? Do you solve it better than other companies can? The third S is story. What's the story that's most compelling that you're telling in the market about your stance and your solution? And then finally, system. What are the systems you're using to distribute your story and to measure its effectiveness so you can optimize it? So those are the four S's I use with the startups I'm working with to ensure they have a really strong marketing strategy foundation, which helps them punch above their weight and helps them uh, rise above the reach and frequency challenge of 
being a small startup with, with limited resources. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on our podcast. It was a pleasure to have you on, and we deeply appreciate your insights. Uh, Eric and I have surely learned a lot today from about a variety of topics, ranging from like mental health to marketing to venture capital. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, it was amazing. Keith, thank you again for coming on. It was a pleasure to have you and really get such a unique and insightful perspective about all the things we talked about. So it was really awesome to have you on. Great. Thanks, Eric and Vivek, for having me on. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking with both of you, too. And uh, maybe we can do a part two someday. I look forward to it. We'll, we'll get on the schedule. Cool. Cheers. Thank you. So, Eric, what do you think? First of all, he's an amazing speaker. I mean, it's to keep and he's one of those people that is so good at synthesizing information because um, he obviously knows so much, but he makes it so clear, you know, when he's talking about the four S's and what are the biggest lessons he's learned from his career. It was so insightful and so easy to listen to. And so I really thought he was a great guest. And then to hear all about his passion for mental health and play was felt very personal for me. And really is such an interesting perspective on everything. So I love having him on. Yeah, no, he was amazing. Uh, I really liked like the one lesson that he learned from his career was about like there really isn't a silver bullet when it comes to like coming up with a strategy for marketing or really anything. Um, and yeah, like I'm definitely going to take that back with me to like my clubs and like, you know, there's there's really no like one answer to like you know, solving that problem. And I, I think he covered that really well. No, I, I agree. I don't think people talk about that enough, uh, especially people that have been in his type of positions and where you kind of think that those people have all the answers, but I think the flexibility and the adaptability that he's shown is what's really made him very successful. So great lessons to bring back to campus and great lessons to uh, give to our viewers. So thank you guys for another great episode this week. We're looking forward to having probably another episode or two before the end of the semester. Uh, if you guys want to have anybody specific on, feel free to let us know. And we're excited to talk with all of you guys next time. Vivek, uh, have a good week and we'll speak soon. You too.